All right. I know that wasn't very much time. I think I said two minutes and that wasn't even two minutes, but that's okay. You're all incredibly smart people, so I'm sure you came up with brilliant answers. Okay, I would love to hear some responses. What, what are your thoughts? What defines a Christian and what defines a disciple of Jesus? Just raise your hand and, uh, uh, and then speak loudly. Yeah, back there in that corner. Great. Okay. Christian is a noun. Disciple. So Christian is something maybe you are. Disciple is something you must do. Being a disciple, is that kind of what you're saying? Great. Awesome. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, right there. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, love is the marker. Yeah. Awesome. Anything else? Wow, Andy, you got some applause for that response. Yeah, right here. Kyle. So as a Christian, you should be known by how you treat others. Okay. Great. That's a good, that's a good thought for definition of Christian. Anything else? Anyone else? Yeah, right here. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Similar to that first response, right? The Christian is kind of a marker. It's something that maybe you are kind of the moment you receive, and then discipleship requires something more. That's great, Brandon. Yeah. Any, anybody else? Yeah, right here up front. Well, um, wouldn't a disciple of Jesus be Jewish since Jesus was Jewish and a Christian came afterwards? And, you know, they don't believe necessarily because uh, the, I guess, the covenant hadn't been established yet. Sure. Yeah, so in kind of a contextualized historical context, we might be able to say exactly what you're saying, right? That in the classic sense, a disciple of Jesus was somebody like actually during first century Near East Palestine followed Jesus Jewish in the rabbinic system following a rabbi. Yeah, you can look at it that way, absolutely, historically. And that Christian is kind of something that came along after that. Yeah, so if you look at it very historically, it's a good... A good thought, yeah. A Christian believes in Christ and in the Bible, and I would say a disciple of Christ walks with him daily and does what he says. Cool, yeah, that's great, Daniel. So, Christian is about belief, discipleship is about walking daily with Jesus. Yeah, maybe one more. <laughs> oh, sorry, who was there? Yeah, nice, thank you. Yes, Lindsay. Cool. Yeah, let's start there. That's brilliant. So I don't know if everyone heard that, but Lindsay just said, well, I don't know. It was this first, so I thought, that's a really crappy answer. I don't know. <laughs> but then you redeemed yourself. You totally redeemed yourself. And uh, <laughs> you're like... You gave this brilliant answer. That's exactly where we want to go. Her response was, I kind of think that maybe it should be the same thing. Let's begin here. 
We can say, none of your answers are wrong, by the way. That was all really great, beautiful, brilliant stuff. And I agree, actually, in some parts with everything you just said. But let's just take a look at the Bible, the scriptures, the New Testament in particular. I could count on one hand the number of times the word translated Christian is found in the New Testament. On one hand. And I would only need a few of the fingers, okay? You need to know that. You could, you could fact check me on that. Google it, Bible Gateway, whatever. The word Christian that is translated Christian on one hand you can count. The word for disciple, it would take numerous, countless hands for me to count, tell you how many times that word is found in the teachings of Jesus, in the story of Jesus, and in the letters of Paul and the other New Testament writers. Disciple is the word we find over and over and over again. The word Christian was actually a word labeled, slapped onto these first and second century followers of what was at the time called the way or the way of this Nazarene rabbi named Jesus. And they didn't know how to classify them. Initially, people thought that they were just kind of this weird, peculiar, odd sect of Judaism. And then eventually, they just well, they called Jesus the Christ. They just call them Christians. It was this external label placed on the, f- the people who were following the way of Jesus. But initially, in the scriptures, what we find is that there is no distinction. There's no such thing as a Christian and a disciple. And something interesting has happened over the last 2,000 years, the two millennia. So many things have been said about discipleship. So many words have been said. So many books have been written. So many seminars have been given. So many sermons have been preached about discipleship. And what has happened from all of those things that are actually very positive, it has created an understanding of discipleship that it is something altogether separate from Christianity. That you can be a Christian, but the whole discipleship thing is for the special Christians, the stud Christians, the ones who fast a lot and pray every morning, the ones who can quote Bible passages and read C.S. Lewis. Those are disciples. I'm just a Christian. Uh, When my wife and I, when Jenny and I got married a little over four years ago, we went on a honeymoon, and, which is normal. I'm like, guess what? We went on a honeymoon. <laughs> You're all, no way. We went on a honeymoon. Um, and I just decided, let's go all out. And so we went way out of our price range, and we went to Europe. And our first five, six days we spent in Paris, Paris, right? Which is a beautiful city. Uh, the Van Cleve's daughter, Kristen, is in Paris. So I'm on her Facebook sometimes, and I see all these beautiful pictures she's taking. I'm like, I've totally been there, and I miss it, and I long for it. Paris is this beautiful city, except for the fact that they don't like Americans that much. But my wife and I don't necessarily look like Americans. So we're like, oh, <laughs> they're like totally fine. <laughs> And it was totally cool, you know? And we would go into restaurants, and they'd be like, oh, those darn Americans. We're like, yes, <laughs> whatever. And they were like, didn't spit in our food or whatever, right? <laughs> Anyways, we went to Paris, loved Paris. We come home, 
And what do newlyweds do? They decorate their new home. And so we are decorating. And one day, again, out of our price range, we are hanging out at Santana Row. My wife and I cannot afford anything at Santana Row unless it is yard house happy hour, right? Yeah. Wow. Relax, everybody, on the yard house happy hour. Ingram, I think we need to pray for this crew. The cheers for yard house happy hour is just way too loud. Um, and we're, we walk by this place called the Z Gallery, where they have all these like, awesome paintings and stuff. And so Jenny and I walk in. We're like, yeah, let's buy some paintings for our house. But everything's expensive. It's like, oh, so beautiful. Oh, Z Gallery. <laughs> we're trying to fit in. We're like, well, this piece. I really like the brush strokes and whatever. I don't know what I'm talking about. But we see this one piece, and it's, uh, it says that it's a print. You know, it's not the original. It's a print, but it's like limited print. There's only like 50 prints in the world. We're like, whoa. And we look at it, and it's this beautiful painting of Paris on kind of a rainy day as the sun is setting. It's beautiful. We're like, oh, man, that like totally reminds us of our time in Paris. we got to get it. And it's like hundreds of dollars, right? It's like a couple hundred bucks. We can't afford it, but it's so perfect and it would fit so well in our house and it would remind us of our time in Paris and so we just fork over the money and we get it and we have it framed and to this day this painting is this limited edition painting is hanging over our fireplace but a week after we bought the painting we are buying laundry detergent at Target and we walk to the home decor section And what do you know? We find our painting for like 40 bucks. And it's like in the, like the, the little, you know, like you got to like sift through. So it's like Bieber, you know, Beyonce, and then our Paris painting. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And we're so angry. We were so upset. We're so angry, right? So I'm like, it's, and we never did anything about it. We still like the painting. But I felt like, I felt like I got cheated out of something. I felt like I had gotten something of worth, unique, deep, rich, something of value. And what I found out was that what I had gotten was a cheap imitation carbon copy. And I want to argue tonight that our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, which also means to be a disciple, to follow Jesus, our understanding, yours and definitely mine, has been a cheap carbon copy imitation understanding. It is shallow and watered down. And so tonight, let's explore for a moment how deep, how rich, and how difficult and yet beautiful and fulfilling the call to discipleship actually is. In Luke chapter 5, there's this story of Jesus. He's a rabbi at the time, and what Jewish rabbis would do, they would travel around and they would teach all these people. And he's teaching by a lake, and he gets in a boat, and he casts out to the water a little bit, and he teaches the masses. And then he sees some fishermen, a young man named Simon and two brothers named James and John. And he goes out to them and he says, hey, let's cast out some nets and catch some fish. And these are professional fishermen, these young men. And so they say, we've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything. But since you're asking us to do it, we'll do it. 
And they go out and they cast the nets and miraculously they catch more fish than they know what to do with. Their nets begin to break and then here is what happens. Luke 5 verses 8 to 11. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore. And here is the key for us tonight. Left everything and followed him. The story continues. Jesus heals a leper. And then he heals a paralyzed man. And then the story turns and it tells us this other story of Jesus calling not fishermen, but a totally different type of person to follow him. Luke 5, 27 to 28. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And so in this chapter, what we see are three key things happening. One, Jesus displays his power, this miraculous catch of fish, the miraculous healing of a man with leprosy, and the miraculous healing of a, of a paralyzed man who could not walk. But bookending these miracles is the story of Jesus calling some of his first disciples. And, uh, and on one hand, you have fishermen. And on the other hand, you have a tax collector. Here is what we have to understand. In first century Near East, Palestine, right, where Jesus lives and breathes and teaches, in the context of this story, fishermen and tax collectors live and exist on polar opposite ends of the socioeconomic system. Fishermen are generally poor. Tax collectors are generally rich. Fishermen are considered very blue-collar. Tax collectors are considered fairly white-collar. Fishermen are considered generally honest and hardworking. Tax collectors are almost exclusively considered dishonest, untrustworthy traitors to the nation of Israel. These two groups of people could not be more opposite. And yet, Jesus, our Lord and Savior calls them both, and he calls them both to the same thing. And they both respond the same way. Next slide. They left everything and followed him. Left everything and followed him. When I read passages like this, I get really nervous. Like, ah, Jesus, I don't want to leave everything and follow you. Because when I received you into my heart when I was 12... And I sang that song in kids' church. I opened the, heart, the box of my heart, and I took the devil out, and I smashed his face, and then I took Jesus, and I put Jesus in. Jesus, fluffy, sweet Jesus. And so I thought what that meant was Jesus is now in my heart. He's in the box of my heart. So that as I go through life, if I come, come across something really difficult, I can open my box and be like, Jesus, 
And then like just the difficulty goes away if I like come across a, a valley of darkness or a mountain that I cannot climb. I just open my box. It's like Jesus power. And then it's fine. That's what I thought the Christian thing was about. And yet in the story of the New Testament, what we find is that Jesus never follows another person. He simply calls others to follow him. And what the first disciples do is incredibly, uh, it's, just, it's just difficult because there's no getting around it, right? They leave everything, they leave everything, and they follow Jesus. I mean, what this means is that the disciples leave their old way of life. You were once a fisherman. You were once a tax collector. You were no longer a fisherman. You were no longer a tax collector. In fact, to the fishermen, Jesus says, hey, yeah, listen, you're not going to fish for people anymore, or you're not going to fish for fish anymore. You're going to fish for people. Like, I wonder if they were wondering, like, you know, one, that's not like a thing, and two, that means we're not fishermen. <laughs> that's weird. You're, that's weird. How do, how do we fish for people? Right? They leave everything. Their entire way of life changes. And the reality is the call to discipleship is exactly this. The, the theologian Doug Greenwald, he says that when the rabbi ultimately did declare his authoritative interpretation on an issue, all further debate ceased. His declared interpretation was now known and therefore binding on his disciples' lives for the rest of their days. As such, the rabbi was the matrix, the filter, the grid through which every life issue flowed as well as the lens through which every life issue was viewed. If you and I are going to follow Jesus, it means that, that it, it impacts our politics. It impacts how we use our money, how we spend our time, what we give our hearts to. It impacts how we speak to our neighbors and our friends and strangers and family and and the people you encounter at Starbucks and the barista who got your order wrong. It impacts how you do everything in life. The old paradigm is done away with. If we would say yes to Jesus, to following Jesus, we must leave everything. This means that Jesus is not in the business of wrapping himself around our lives. We must be in the business of wrapping ourselves around Jesus. Jesus does not follow me. I follow Jesus. Where he goes, I must go. This is discipleship and nothing less. Dallas Willard, the theologian Dallas Willard says this, the disciple is one who intent upon becoming Christ-like and so dwelling in his faith and practice systematically and progressively rearranges his affairs rearranges his affairs to that end. By these actions, even today, one enrolls in Christ's training, becoming his pupil or disciple. There is no other way. Yes, Dallas, yes. There is no other way. We must rearrange. We must be willing to rearrange our lives to follow Jesus. This is discipleship. Here's the deal. Discipleship is not convenient. It is not easy. It will cost you everything. Everything. And yet it will in return give you a life that you cannot imagine. 
a life of fullness and richness, of depth, of meaning that you and I cannot imagine until we taste it. There's this passage, 1 Corinthians 11.1, and Paul is writing to his friends in a church in a city called Corinth. And he says this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That phrase, my example, follow my example, is the Greek word mimetes. And it means exactly what it sounds like. It means to imitate or to mimic. And so what Paul is saying here, he's painting a picture for us of discipleship in community. He's telling some people that he has influence over, hey, imitate me, mimic me, do what I'm doing. But do what I'm doing as I do what Jesus does. Do what I'm doing as I do what Jesus does. You see the picture of what discipleship looks like? So often we live our lives. So often I live my life, and when something comes up, I go to Jesus. And I say, Jesus, what? Can you just fix this? Can you step in and resolve the situation? And far, like not nearly often enough am I saying every morning, Jesus, today I will simply do as you do. Because if we were to live our lives that way, Regardless of situations and circumstances come up, if we are doing as Jesus is doing, if we are living our lives, mimicking and imitating the way of Jesus, it's not kind of this like one-shot deal when something comes up. It's just the way we live and we are able, we are able to see ourselves. Jesus, allow Jesus to see us through even the stormiest of seas. If we are simply doing what Jesus does, I kissed the first girl I ever kissed when I was in middle school. And when I got to sixth grade, I was 12, right? So all I wanted to do was be popular. Because that's what everyone wants to do when they're 12. They want to be popular. And there was this kid at my school named Brian who was the most popular kid at school. And the crazy thing is he was super popular even as a sixth grader. We were in the same grade. And I think a part of it was because he had an older brother who was really popular and was an eighth grader. And so that kind of got him into the in crowd. And so my life's goal in middle school, I didn't care about grades or my future. What is that? I just wanted to be popular. (laughs) And so I did everything I could to become like super close with this guy, Brian. And I eventually did. And by eighth grade, Brian and I were like tight. And so by default, I was kind of popular. Right? That was my heyday, by the way. High school was just all, right? <laughs> Eighth grade. Oh, man. Glory years. <laughs> Back in 93, you guys. Um, I'm old. Some of you are like, 93? That's an actual year? <laughs> uh, yeah, that existed. That happened. Um, and in eighth grade, there was this girl. Her name was Fran, and I thought she was pretty cute. And we were hanging out after school one day. There were groups of us. And then she was with me, and kind of sitting next to me. And then, like, we kissed each other. And I was like, yeah, I'm the best, <laughs> is what I thought. And it was, I, I was 14, right? So it was like this like totally awkward, weird, like, right? It was just like stupid and dumb. And then she says to me as we're talking after we kiss, I'm just thinking like, oh my gosh, wedding bells, I'm going to marry her, whatever. And then she says to me at a certain point, she goes, you know that I just kissed you because you remind me of Brian, right? Yeah. I know. Bless my heart, right? (laughs) If you're single, guard your lips, everybody. (laughs) 
they'll hurt you. Um, anyways, <laughs> that's what she said to me. And I was crushed. And I remember in my 14-year-old mind going home that night and just wrestling with this thought, like, am I really just like him? Am I? And, then, and then you start thinking like these existential weird questions like, well, who am I? Where am I? Who is Jay? Do I exist? Am I just a carbon copy of this other person? Like, what is happening, right? And it totally ruined me. I remember, I remember her telling me, she was like, yeah, you even like, you talk like him. You like move your hands like him when you talk. It's really cute. I was like, wait a minute, what? You're saying he's really cute. And I'm like, you know, like some weird cheap version. Like, what the heck? I feel so used is what happened. I felt so used. And it like messed me up, but it opened my eyes to this reality. We can become like other people. And as I have gotten older, what I am realizing is that we do not have a choice in the matter. You and I are all becoming someone. We are all either becoming the version of ourselves that the world is advertising and marketing to us, that you must look a certain way, achieve a certain status, have certain things, that you have to have that degree or that job or that bank account or that house or that girlfriend, boyfriend or that spouse or those kids or the white picket fence or the 401k or the career, the success, the status and the accolades. We can become that fake, false version of ourselves that the world wants to sell us for our wallets. Or we can become like the person Jesus put us on the planet to be. We can say no to the crap and the lies that the world is selling us and say yes to leaving everything behind. All of that junk and that mess and that pressure to perform and succeed and do and be and have and achieve. We can leave it behind and ask a simpler, better, much more beautiful and full and rich question. Jesus, where are you going? And how? do I follow? That's a choice all of us have to make. Which version of ourselves will we become? Who will we mimic? I don't want to lie to you, though. The way of Jesus is difficult. Matthew 16, 24-25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Oh, right? That's the way of Jesus. Sacrifice. Taking up the cross. Saying, saying yes to Jesus. Leaving everything behind and following Jesus is saying yes to this to really, truly, not just leaving everything behind, but actually dying to the old stuff. Dying, letting some stuff die. But here's the beautiful part. Jesus bids us to come and die. But on the other end, he promises us amazing, full, rich life. We'll get to that in a second. The writer, theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that the cross is laid on every Christian, on every Christian, not disciple, because it's one and the same. 
If you are a Christian, then you are saying yes to Jesus. You cannot be a Christian and say no to the way of Jesus. And I know that rattles some of your cages. It rattles mine. I wish I could. I wish I could say, well, I got, I got saved. I have my golden ticket to the chocolate factory known as heaven. I'm good, right? I'm going to get in. That's not the invitation. It's a part of it. It's a reward. It's what we get to celebrate for all of eternity. But the invitation is here and now. It's that we might live out the way of Jesus here and now. Leave everything behind and follow Jesus. The cross is laid on every Christian. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man or woman, he bids us come and die. And yet there is so much more on the other side. But it is difficult. And so I want to point out three truths that are hard, but hopefully encouraging. First, the call to discipleship is a difficult one, and we cannot do it on our own. You cannot follow Jesus on your own. You notice that when Jesus calls the fishermen, he also calls a tax collector and a few others, and there's like 12 of them. You notice in the narrative of the New Testament that when Jesus sends the disciples out to do work, he sends them in groups and pairs. You notice that when uh, the church in the book of Acts, after Jesus comes back to life and leaves for a bit, uh, when the church gathers, what we are all now, the legacy we all enjoy, when the church gathers, you notice that it's not one person in a house by him or herself just saying, I'm the church. You notice that they get together and it says that they share everything they have and they do life together. There is not a single instance or, or uh, example or picture in the New Testament of somebody following Jesus alone. Not one. There is not one. You could not find it of someone sustaining a lifelong relationship with Jesus by him or herself. It does not exist, and I would argue it is not possible. A full, rich, deep following of Jesus, I would say, cannot be done alone. The second point is that Jesus taught the masses from town to town. He taught the masses from town to town. He traveled around. He taught tons of people, thousands of them. But he discipled just a few for three years. He discipled just a few for three years. And that leads us to our final point about discipleship. Life-changing discipleship requires a community committed for the long haul. A community committed for the long haul. The writer Greg Ogden says that disciples cannot be mass produced. We cannot drop people into a program and see disciples emerge at the end of the production line. It takes time to make disciples. It takes individual personal attention. Discipling is an intentional relationship in which we walk alongside other disciples in order to encourage, equip, and challenge one another in love to grow toward maturity in Christ. Can't do it by ourselves. It's difficult and it's hard. And yet the promise is certain. As Jesus says in John chapter 10, he says that he has come. And if we would follow, his promise is that he has come. And here's the key word. That they, plural, many, in community, that they, 
may have life and have life to the full. When I was uh, 19, I was a mess. My life was spiraling out of control. I did not walk the way of Jesus. I didn't care about Jesus. I grew up in the church, and I had decided at that age that it was all a lie, that it was all fraud, that it was all fake. I was done with it. And there was this guy who was about 10 years older than me. He was a newlywed. He invited me and three other young men, college-age guys, to come to his house every Monday. And he, he um, bribed me with free food and Monday night football. And then he just slipped it in there the first night after we watched Monday Night Football and ate this food. He was like, oh, man, that was so fun. We're like, yeah, man, that was super fun. Also, I got you all this book. Read it. <laughs> what, uh, what? It was a book by Brennan Manning called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And I was like, well, I'm not going to read this. It's such garbage. So I didn't read it, but I, I went back the next week because I wanted to watch football, and they were fun guys, and there was free food. And then at the end of the game, he was like, what would you guys think of the book? And I was like, I didn't read it. And then he was like, listen, if you don't read the first chapter by next Monday, I'm just never going to invite you back to my house. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay. So I read, I read the first chapter. And I remember as I read the first chapter of Ragamuffin Gospel by Brendan Manning, I felt my heart begin to break and crack in ways that I had never felt before in my entire life, growing up in the church for 19 years. And I went back that following week, and I was like, I read the book, and I have no idea what's happening to me, but something is happening to me. I met with that group for two years, every Monday. We would eat. If it was football season, we would watch football, and then we would talk about the next book we were reading. And it changed my life. I was invited into a community that was committed for the long haul, a community that admitted that discipleship was incredibly difficult. But it was a community of people who accepted me with all of my flaws, all of my failures, and they believed this guy, this man who was 10 years older than me with his newlywed wife gave up his Monday nights for two years because he believed that something was inside of me that I did not believe in myself. This is 15 years ago. Let me tell you about my day today. This is not to brag. I woke up today at 6.30 and I got here with some men and women who are giving their all to be a part of this mission. And we set up for our 1030 service. I spoke in our 1030 service. I taught the same message. And then I helped tear down. I went home and had a quick lunch with my wife, showered, changed into a suit, and then printed out some notes and prepped for a wedding in Palo Alto of a young couple that um, has been coming here to Awakening and met Jesus here in the last couple of months. And I performed their wedding in Palo Alto and I drove right back here, changed back into my normal clothes to teach this service. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. Like I want to pass out right here, right now. It has been a long week. <laughs> But there is not a thing on earth that I would rather do. Not one thing. If a single word I said tonight has in any way moved or influenced or impacted you, you need to know. It's because I am passionate about this 
And that is because there was a man none of you know 15 years ago who decided he was going to be in it for the long haul with me. This is what happens when we give ourselves to the way of Jesus in community. When we would, if we would believe that about one another and say, man, I'm not going to get frustrated because you can't get over this addiction or this thing in a week. I'm not going to get frustrated. I'm going to trek with you. When I was meeting with this group when I was 19, I was an alcoholic. For the first six months, there were nights I showed up not sober with my book. And he, he would say, grab a slice of pizza. Let's watch the game. Drink some water. And then we'll talk. This is what happens when a group of people ask the question, what if we all, what if we all together follow Jesus? Man, I, I, pray, I pray that for you. For each and every one of you for your classmates at school and for your coworkers and your families. I pray that prayer for you. I pray it for you. Can you ask, would you ask that question? What if we all did this together? What might happen in my life and in the lives of those I care about most and in our city and in our world? If we would all commit in community for the long haul, I mean, the the next steps are easy, right? Take the card. If you've never done intro, mark intro and just hang out with us. Here's the deal. If you're a mess and you're a wreck and you're barely Christian or you're not sure you are or you hate the church, it does not matter. We love you. Jesus loves you. Come hang out with us. And if that's you, and maybe, maybe you're like not interested in that, maybe you're like, well, maybe missional communities. Maybe I'll just hang out with people. Here's what you need to know. There are people here who are leading missional communities that do not care primarily what you do. They care primarily who you are and who you are becoming, and they will love you unconditionally, no matter what baggage you carry. So carry the baggage. Be honest and be free and join us. Take a risk and see what happens if we would commit in community for the long haul. If we would no longer live these counterfeit lives, trying to mimic the versions of ourselves that the world, that the enemy, the devil tells us we need to be. We leave it all behind, leave it all behind and follow Jesus and say, yes, Jesus, where are you going? Because that's where I want to go. Shamina and um, Matt and Ryan are going to come back up. And we're, we're going to worship our way out of here. And as we sing, here's what you need to know. There's communion up front. There's communion in the back where the lights are hanging in the prayer area. If you have said yes to Jesus, then come and participate in communion. It's open to all who have said yes to Jesus. And if you need prayer for anything, there'll be some leaders in that back um, area, in the prayer area, under the lights. Some men and some women leaders to pray for you. If you need prayer, come and be prayed for.
Let me pray, then we'll sing. Jesus, thank you for who you are, for what you've done. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for rescue. Thank you for this community. Thank you for one another. Give us the strength and the courage to say yes to leaving everything behind and following you and help us to know that there is strength not just in ourselves but in you ultimately and also in one another that we can lean on each other as we follow you together. We love you, God. Come move. Continue to move in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.